Hey, this is Rupa. So, <laughs> the whole tone of our country has changed in the few weeks since Donald Trump has been president. We don't want him here. With those words, Trump banned Syrian refugees and temporarily travelers from seven Muslim-majority countries. People across the country immediately stormed airports and demanded authorities release those being held. Not my president. And I keep wondering if that puts us at a really unique moment in American history. Because when big stuff like this happened before, you know, slavery, Jim Crow, the internment of Japanese Americans, most Americans let it happen. Most Americans also happen to be white. Now nearly half of Americans are people of color. And it doesn't look like they're going to let it happen. The crowds protesting are remarkably integrated. In comparison, people in the pictures coming out of the White House are conspicuously white. Except for a few people of color, many of whom are Indian Americans. Or, as we call ourselves, Desis. It just means a person from the Indian subcontinent. Historically, we've voted Democratic. There were plenty of Indian American Obama staffers. And just last episode, I talked to new U.S. Congresswoman Pramila Jaypal from Washington State, a Democrat. And Aziz Ansari was just on Saturday Night Live with this. The problem is, there's a new group. I'm talking about these people that as soon as Trump won, they're like, we don't have to pretend like we're not racist anymore! We don't have to pretend anymore! We can be racist again! Woo! Whoa, 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 whoa! No, no! If you're one of these people, please go back to pretending. You gotta go back to pretending. I'm so sorry we never thanked you for your service. We never realized how much effort you were putting into the pretending, but you gotta go back to pretending. Probably because I'm one of them, I was curious about where Indian Americans are politically now. How many have gone Republican? There was no way to answer that question, though. The polls from the last election vary like crazy. So, I bring you an episode in three parts. The first looks at how Indians became model minorities and what role they're playing in America's really complicated history of race. The second is the story of a guy who taught Donald Trump how to campaign to American Daisies. And the third is a conversation with one of the most prominent American Muslims to serve in U.S. government since 9-11. I'm Rupa Shanoi, and this is Otherhood. Part 1. The first thing to know about Indian Americans is that they aren't necessarily representative of all Indians, because they were the carefully selected cream of the crop. After the U.S. opened its borders in the 1960s, it only allowed the most educated and skilled to immigrate to America. And in India, there were lots of educated and skilled people looking for jobs. They'd just graduated from new elite schools built after independence. But India didn't have a lot of good jobs, and the U.S. did. So it's not surprising that Indian Americans were successful. U.S. politicians began to contrast them with other people of color. Indiana University history and race professor Ellen Wu wrote a book about this. It's been convenient for authority figures or people in power to turn to Asian Americans as you know model minority examples to suggest that America works for everyone, including racial minorities. The implied message was if African Americans weren't succeeding, 
that was their fault. America is a great place for people of color. You just have to work hard and, and don't make trouble and you will be fine. Some Indian Americans think that's true. Others have hit glass ceilings, like Nina Davaluri, Miss America 2014. Your new Miss America is Miss New York! There was an outpouring of hate in response to her win. Comedian Bill Maher read some of the tweets on his show. I mean, listen to some of this nonsense. Congratulations, Al-Qaeda, or Miss America is one of you. <laughs> Miss America is a terrorist, whatever. All you can do is shake your head and wonder, where does Donald Trump get the time? Weird thing was, Nina was crowned Miss America 30 years after Vanessa Williams, the first African-American winner. She had a very similar conversation surrounding her win, you know, about her race and her identity. And 30 years later, it just goes to show how resistant sometimes we can be to change in something in the grand scheme of the world as small as Miss America. And I think the silver lining was that for every negative comment, tweet, post, or message, you know, I received hundreds, if not thousands, of positive remarks and um, young people really championing this idea of diversity and really questioning what it means to be American today. Now that's a conversation we're all having, Davalori says. Who America is and who Americans are is currently being debated globally, and we all have stake in that debate. I will say I think it's very naive to think that there's no backlash in the United States to the success um, of Indian Americans. It's certainly something I've experienced along with many other influential Indian American people, and not only Indian Americans, I think all people of color. So I think it's more important than ever for our community to make it clear that we are first and foremost American. That means different things to different people. For Raj Shah, it means serving in the Trump administration. Look, I'm an American. Shah led Republican opposition research into the Clinton campaign and is now Donald Trump's deputy director of communications. You've got to be a Donald Trump fan, right, to work kind of around the clock for the effort. He talked to my colleague at the BBC Asian Network in London, Rahul Jaglakar. I support a policy of uh, looking at individuals who are coming into this country from places where, um, you know, nations and nation states uh, don't have the same level of security. You know, among the millions of people who have been displaced, you have some bad actors and you have uh, agents of terrorist organizations and other folks. And it's, you know, to not look at that reality and to not take that potential security threat very seriously would be a big mistake. Shah's one of at least four Indian Americans who've joined the Trump administration in prominent roles, including UN Ambassador Nikki Haley, FCC Chairman Ajit Pai, and Seema Verma, Trump's nominee for administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. This is Ellen Wu again. It's not surprising that Trump would try to find brown people that maybe their politics align with the Trump administration, but can be trotted out as you know, people of color, quote unquote, to kind of show that, you know, there are some gestures toward diversity because that's kind of how race works, right, for, for minorities. And we see this in Hollywood, too. There just there's not a lot of room for people of color to take on different roles. So it really does matter when you have that one or two or three people of color or whatever number it is, because there's a kind of symbolic significance. But again, there are plenty of Democratic Indian Americans. Hi. 
Sorry, if it's possible for me to get lost, I do. That's <laughs> okay. Good to meet you. Nice Come to meet you. you. Nishathacharya and his wife are taking advantage of their time away from the D.C. scene to raise their young kids in the suburban Boston house where Nish grew up. He was the director of innovation in Obama's Commerce Department and wrote a book about U.S.-India trade. In the 90s, Nish was part of a small group of young Desis who were the first Indian Americans to have semi-prominent roles in government. They were all friends, Republicans and Democrats, Nish says, because there were so few of them. And then Bobby Jindal ran for governor of Louisiana. When Bobby Jindal ran, that was sort of the, the point where a lot of things split off. Indian Americans were faced with a choice. Do you support a guy just because he's a fellow Desi? Or do you not because he really doesn't have much to do with Indian culture and you don't support his policies anyway? So one guy can be that watershed? I think so. For a minute, Bobby Jindal was the next Indian American Barack Obama. In 2008, Mike Wallace did a piece on 60 Minutes about how Jindal was the future of the Republican Party. In high school, he converted from his parents' Hindu faith to Catholicism, and he rejected their political party as well. I grew up at a time when there weren't a whole lot of Republicans in this state, but I identified with President Reagan. He was, uh, I thought, a very successful president. As he became more and more conservative, there was really a disconnect amongst Indian Americans that is this guy, you know, uh, one of us or not one of us? Is he running from us? Uh, that was really a split. I would say he was he was the manifestation of a split that would eventually have happened. Uh, in he any was the diverse first. community. Exactly. Were there repercussions to the schism? I think, unfortunately, the Indian American community ended up following the same path as America in general. They just became more partisan. So that the same separation you see elsewhere uh, eventually hit our community as well. Nish thought it was a sign of the Indian American community maturing and becoming more politically diverse. In principle, a good thing. But then he saw Indian American Republicans supporting Trump. I think it just gave our community a really bad, I thought it would give us a really bad name. I thought people would say, you know, all the, you know, minority groups are, are smart about this and they're supporting Clinton and there's this one group who doesn't know what they're doing, but they're really wealthy and so they're going with Trump. You represent the community and you, you make us a part of that. And that was very upsetting personally. Because we're still a minority enough mm -hmm. to have one group seem to represent us all. Exactly. Nish thinks Trump is attracting Hindu Indian Americans to republicanism through a shared Islamophobia. And there's no big liberal Indian American group to counter the message that Indians who support Trump sent by throwing huge Bollywood-style parties for Trump. When are we going to get organized? Where are we going to take a stand? Why has nobody come out as a community leaders? How come we've had no press conference of 20 leaders saying we oppose a registry? You know, how come that doesn't happen? You know, I don't know the answer why. Uh, we haven't gotten around to it. Some people feel like it's not necessary. Some people feel like that's not their cause. And so this might be a turning point. If if Indians are part of the administration, maybe the other side will have to come out mm -hmm. or feel like they have to come out yeah. and, and do those kind of things. Yeah, I, I, I hope so. I mean, I think one of the things that's been missing is, is somebody, is people willing to bankroll it. Meanwhile, Nish says it is impressive that Indian Americans have been appointed to such high positions in the Trump administration. That should be celebrated, he says. Do their appointments show that this administration is inclusive? 
I don't think they do. They're taking people that they're already comfortable with from the worlds that they come from and putting them in. So to me, that's not being inclusive. That's just picking the people you already work with. He still thinks those they see appointments may confuse American perceptions of Indian Americans. There's sort of a schizophrenia about, you know, what is your identity? Uh, and I'm okay with that. If I'm actually okay with... Uh, you know, having a decent number of, of normal Republicans who are Indian Americans and then, you know, Democrats. I think that diversity is probably a good thing. But until Democrats get more organized, Republican Indian Americans may play a larger role in shaping how America sees, you know, all they sees. Until we have a organizational structure that can actually debate these issues regularly, uh, take stands on it, push for it, advocate, I think we'll be viewed as generally an immature community by others. Meanwhile, Republican Daisies will enjoy access to the president. That's part two. It all started one night in 1979. Shalab Kumar, a Punjabi immigrant who owned a small electronics firm, took his wife to the Illinois Manufacturers Association dinner. The speaker was presidential candidate Ronald Reagan. Reagan took questions, and Kumar raised his hand to ask one, but Reagan said he'd get to him in a minute, and then never did. The Kumars were getting up to go at the end of the night when two guys who looked like Secret Service agents stopped them. Reagan had asked to see the Kumars. Turns out, he wanted to ask some questions. So he asked me, why are you guys, why are Indian Americans Democrats? Kumar said, because everyone in India loved JFK. His posters were more popular throughout India in my town as compared to the posters of the famous actors of those days, Dilip Kumar and Devanand. He was just a very popular guy. Reagan was like, yeah, but what else? I said, well, I'm, I'm a minority. So all minorities are supposed to be Democrats. <laughs> Did he laugh? So, yeah, he kind of laughed. Reagan asked Kumar about his business and asked how many hours a week he worked. Kumar said, a hundred. He says, well, how would you like to have the government take away like two-thirds of what you make? I said, really? That's what the government wants to do? Uh, no, no, that's not right. So he says, see, you're a Republican. That one conversation was pretty pivotal. Reagan convinced Kumar that American politics were no longer about race. They were about money. Kumar soon founded the first Indian American Republican organization. He sat on Reagan's informal small business council. We used to go to White House twice a year and uh, also meet with the vice president and cabinet secretaries. Kumar was in the inner circle. About 10 years passed. In 2008, a group of militants from an Islamic group went on a shooting and bombing spree in Bombay. It lasted four days. The country was deeply shaken. Hindu nationalists began to gain ground in Indian politics, including a rising star named Narendra Modi. He apparently caught the attention of Newt Gingrich, the Republican Speaker of the House who resigned in the late 1990s after an ethics investigation because Shulab Kumar had become good friends with Gingrich and says Gingrich told him to check Modi out. That's where I found out that there is this guy, uh, Chief Minister of Gujarat, Modi, who uh, most of the Gujaratis consider as almost as God. Modi was minister of the Gujarat state. 
and he was the only guy the U.S. has ever refused to give a visa to for violating religious freedoms. He allegedly allowed hundreds of Muslims to die in a riot. The Indian government investigated, and Kumar read their reports. I was absolutely, totally convinced that if there was anything, Chief Minister Modi saved lives, and it was just a political move. Kumar led an effort to rehabilitate Modi's image in America. In 2013, he got some Republican congressmen to visit Modi in Gujarat, giving Modi some critical exposure as he was running for prime minister. It started a movement towards his acceptance in the American community. The next year, Prime Minister Modi was in Madison Square Garden, greeting a sea of fans. Hari Srinivasan of the PBS NewsHour was one of the hosts. And when we talked for Otherhood's journalism episode, he told me about that night. This was the triumphant comeback into this country. You know, it was, it was dawning on me as I was watching the crowds pour in, wow, this was such an important moment for his supporters. I mean, it was rally-like. The energy in the room was unbelievable. And frankly, that event at Madison Square Garden, it was probably the largest television audience that I will ever have in my entire life. And even the last time I was in India, more than a year after when this happened, the doorman at a hotel recognizes me and says, oh, sir, you, you were the one with the prime minister. Shalab Kumar says, Newt Gingrich told him to check out another guy, Donald Trump. As Newt Gingrich became very serious about it, I got more and more serious about it. Newt Gingrich set up a, a meeting with Donald uh, and encouraged me to ask all questions I have in my mind, any and all questions. Uh, he, he said he will be on the phone um, waiting for me if, if uh, there was something which uh, uh, was not still clear. And he says, don't come back until you are, you are totally satisfied. Kumar liked that Trump spoke like him, like a businessman, and seemed to mean what he said. Trump told Kumar that he wouldn't stop legal immigration from India because people there are skilled and educated, and the U.S. needs those kinds of immigrants. He's not anti-immigrant. He's anti-illegal immigration. Kumar was sold. He asked his daughter, Manasvi Kumar, to help campaign for Trump. She's a Bollywood actress. When she met Trump? We had a very long chat, and because I was a former Miss India and he had the Miss Universe pageant, so we got talking, and you know, it was it was very nice, and he was explaining to me uh, his ideas, he was explaining to us, you know, what he sees for the country, and you know, all these things. I was like, hey, you know, this person is genuine. The Kumars had Trump shoot a commercial that they say was pivotal in turning thousands of Indian American votes. In it, Trump happens to use the same slogan Narendra Modi used in his campaign for prime minister. Trump Sarkar. It means, this time, a Trump government. We love the Hindus. We love India. I'm Donald Trump, and I approve this message. When the ad was released, people studied it with fascination. It was strange, with images that jump around the screen and music that abruptly starts and stops. But Kumar says it worked. Uh, First time in the history of our whole election campaigning to have 
to speak in Hindi. The whole thing went wild. Did you help him say that? Sure, of course. <laughs> you were saying it and then he was repeating it to get it right? The, there was a whole one hour <laughs> uh, episode as to how it went. He spent an hour. The pronunciation was a little challenging, so but he'll try. You get a little frustrated and then try. The Kumars campaigned for Trump in Indian American communities across the country. In Florida, they took Eric Trump to a Hindu temple. After the, temp- the event got over, we told Eric, thank you, thank you for uh, adopting Hinduism. So he was like, no, thank you. And it's very sweet because, you know, uh, when we met him again at Trump Tower a month, two months after the event, he still remembered all the gods. The Kumars believe they've achieved a fundamental shift in the Indian American electorate to republicanism. Now they're basking in their victory. They would like to include as many uh, Hindu Americans, Indian Americans into uh, the administration. In fact, uh, they have told us such, Mike Pence, now the vice president, he in fact reminds me many times, where are your candidates? Because he wants to put a lot of uh, Hindu Americans in the government. Kumars also extracted some promises from Trump. First, to keep the H-1B visa program that allows many Indians to come to the states. There have been rumors Trump's going to cut the number of H-1B visas, but Kumar says they aren't true. He's focused on getting Trump to follow up on a pledge to sell advanced weapons to India. Absolutely. And he's totally committed to that. This is where some motivations converge. Kumar cares about India defending itself from Muslim attackers. And fear of that same threat means Kumar supports Trump's travel ban. In the mosque, you know, a lot of this preaching, I mean, let's face the camel in the room. There is so much where they teach, you know, hatred. I won't say all of them, but if there is any um, inkling that a particular mask is engaged in this kind of activity, our enforcement uh, agencies should follow the law, go to the court, get uh, an order, and monitor them. And Kumar says he should not be expected to show solidarity with other people of color. What does that do? We, we need to look at policies that improve the lives, uh, the standard of living for Americans, all Americans. Hopefully his daughter will soon be included among those Americans. She's still an Indian citizen. I would like to have her a parallel path in American politics. I think she will make a wonderful uh, congresswoman, start out with uh, congresswoman to senator and so forth. I forgot to ask, but I'm thinking she'll probably run as a Republican. India is a homeland for a lot of religions. It has one of the largest populations of Muslims in the world. And generally, one of the few things non-Indians know about India is the historic tension between Hindus and Muslims. What you might not know is that India was never one united country until the British came. It was ruled instead by regional kings who had both Muslim and Hindu subjects. The most famous king was Muslim. His name was Akbar. And there's a Bollywood movie about how he married a Hindu woman to show his inclusiveness. Lots of people blame the British colonizers for turning Hindus and Muslims against each other in order to maintain power. 
After they left, the situation exploded. India divided into two countries. Millions of Hindus and Muslims were forced to resettle, and there was a lot of violence and bitterness. India and Pakistan went to war over the disputed Kashmir region. But under the leadership of its first prime minister, Nehru, by the 1960s, India became a country that publicly prided itself on its diversity and tolerance. And that made a big impression on young Indian Americans who went on to visit the country, like me and like Farah Pandith. She is part three. Farah understood from a young age that just like there's no one kind of Indian, there's no one kind of American. As I was growing up as an American, almost every single summer, I used to go back to Kashmir to visit family. And that was pivotal because it it gave me at a very young age this idea of the world being bigger than just America. Many different cultures, the different languages that are spoken, the the diversity that India is. And and I really, you know, I understood that um, at a very, very early age. Farah was born in Kashmir and raised in Boston. She grew up to be class president at Smith College. Across America at that time, this is the end of the 80s, there was a lot of parallel kinds of conversations as to sort of the mood in the country today. There was an us versus them. There was a lot going around uh, with regard to race. So when Pandit had to give a speech at the school year opening ceremony, she made it about diversity. Alumni Barbara Bush was there that day. The next day, the White House called Smith and asked for a copy of the speech. The First Lady wanted to quote the speech in her own speeches. Pandith faxed hers to the White House because that's what you did back then. I was getting letters from college presidents all over America saying Mrs. Bush just came to our campus and she's just quoted you. Pandith and Bush kept in touch with handwritten notes. When Pandith graduated, Mrs. Bush had her to the White House to discuss job options. Pandith worked at the United States Agency for International Development for a few years and then went to grad school at Tufts. She did her thesis on the insurgency going on in Kashmir. One of Farah's relatives there was killed by a militant group, and at the funeral, another family member died from random fire. Farah went to Kashmir to do her research. She talked to militants just released from jail and senior government officials. She calls it... My James Bond summer. It was the beginning of me understanding how powerful ideology is. That was 1995. Six years later, she was working at a Boston consulting firm when terrorists attacked the Twin Towers in New York. Like many Americans, Pandit felt compelled to do something. And I remember walking into my boss's office and saying to him, you know, look, our country has just been attacked and I'm an American and I'm a Muslim and I have this background in international affairs and certainly there's got to be something that I can do to serve. Farah went on to serve on the National Security Council under George W. Bush and Obama. At the State Department, she helped craft an outreach program to Muslims called Countering Violent Extremism. Then, Obama made her the first-ever special representative to Muslim communities. She was the American face to the Muslim world. 
there were so many moments in the early years after 9-11 when I was working at the National Security Council where people would say to me, it must be so hard to, to be female or to be somebody of Indian origin, you know, when you're dealing with all of these difficult issues. And I would look at them funny because I didn't understand why they would ever say that because it was a very diverse National Security Council. I was treated with dignity at every stage of the game. And at every stage, Pandith made sure to steer clear of anything partisan. For me, it was not about politics. It was about policy. It was about serving our nation. Everything you've heard so far from Farah is from a conversation I had with her a day before Trump issued his executive order banning travel from seven Muslim-majority nations. I talked to her again two weeks later. Farah? Hello, Rupa. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for taking some time again. I really appreciate it. No, it's no problem. This is an important issue. Yeah. What did you think when you saw the executive order come out, Trump's travel ban, and what have you been seeing since? There has been no terrorist-related death caused by a foreigner since 9-11 in the homeland. So this strategy of the executive order will not get us where we want to go. It is flawed, it lacks intellectual rigor, and it doesn't address the underlying issue, which is that you have to understand how people are getting recruited and radicalized. You can't build an idea wall. So when I heard about the executive order and understood the larger implications, it was very clear to me that the intellectual rigor that needs to go through the process of creating a particular executive order was not there. You helped create Countering Violent Extremism, the program that the government called Outreach, but that many Muslim communities saw as surveillance. And now the Trump administration is talking about more scrutiny of Muslim communities, calling that program Countering Violent Extremism, Countering Islamic Extremism. What do you see as the reaction if they take that step? When the Countering Violent Extremism field opened up out of the national security strategy in 2006, President Bush defined it as a battle of arms and a battle of ideas. The misunderstanding by communities in our country around what countering violent extremism is, is very important. And it plays into what we're seeing right now. So how a president speaks, how a White House talks about our country, its diversity, its respect for all its citizens is really important. In my role serving my country under President Bush and President Obama, I was confident that America was not at war with Islam. We are not a nation that rejects any faith. Our constitution protects all citizens and underscores freedom of faith. But this executive order is giving a signal by the White House, however intended, that they believe being a citizen of a Muslim-majority nation is a risk. Unfortunately, some of the harm has been done because it has allowed terrorist organizations to hold on to this faulty idea that America is at war with Islam, that we don't respect Muslims. So we need to have citizens on board with pushing back against the ideology of the extremists. And the only way to do that is to do it with trust, both of community members and of the government. 
This executive order will do more harm than we know because it has already unleashed the idea of an us and them and it has made terrorist organizations happy because it has advocated what they want you to believe, which is that our country, the United States, is not a country that values the diversity of its people and that Islam is somehow a bad force within our country. If the rationale is to say somehow if you are from any nation in the world in which this kind of ideology exists, you somehow are contaminated and you are going to come into a country, it is an absurd philosophy. It doesn't work like that. For those of us who have been working on stopping the spread of this ideology and the appeal of it, and those people who have worked on the counterterrorism side, we absolutely know how people get radicalized and what the threats are. For the United States, for the homeland, the greatest threat that we have at this moment are people who have found this ideology already appealing. They're already here. And what we want to see is a seriousness from the White House, certainly, in keeping America safe. But I believe that the measure of seriousness for the Trump doctrine on fighting this kind of terrorism is what he does with Saudi Arabia. And it's interesting to me that the country's chosen on this list are not countries that we know have been doing things to push out ideology and, and Saudi Arabia is one of those countries yet it is not listed it's not talked about so after this start do you have any confidence that things might change the president needs to look at a strategy that is built off of what we learned over 15 years certainly every president adjusts as they go forward and it can't happen if it's done this way, so there has to be a correction. Can the Trump administration make the adjustments you're talking about without people like you on his team? I mean, we're seeing the administration thus far is very white. And you brought a lot of insight to your position. You happen to be Muslim. You happen to be the kids of immigrants. So what is an administration getting into if they don't have those people on their team? This is the key. You can't solve complex problems if you're only going to the same people over and over again. And so we have heard a lot over the last couple of weeks about the lack of diversity around President Trump. And I think there is great opportunity for him to be very careful and considerate about what he needs going forward. And I think bringing that kind of diversity to his team inside the White House and around him will be very important so that they can gather insight. Things are always changing and we need to see different kinds of approaches to get to a solution. We can't base this on what we think happened years ago and having the same kind of conversations we had right after 9-11, which is what, frankly, I've been hearing. It is tremendously depressing to hear the same kind of lack of nuance, uh, lack of understanding of how radicalization takes place that we heard in the days right after 9-11. How should Muslims respond? Because, I mean, it, ha it has to be a really difficult situation, right? Because they can't fight back without being accused of hiding something or something like that. You know, Rupa, one of the things that I have been seeing in our country in the last two weeks of this administration 
is a great deal, obviously, of frustration and anger. And right now, the executive order is going through the courts, which actually sends a very strong message across our nation that this isn't about just Muslims. This is about our country talking about and celebrating our constitution and understanding the rule of law. You've seen dramatic changes in our country, huge protests. American citizens are coming together, speaking about who we are as Americans. And so there's a great deal of unifying momentum around diversity, around making sure that we don't turn into a country that does not represent our values. We have talked a lot about, you hearing, you're hearing a lot in America right now about our, our own history and our, the good and the bad and how that impacts. So there's a great deal of open conversation that's happening here. It isn't a question about speaking up. That's what I meant about, this is the same conversation I heard right after 9-11, where everybody around the world believed that if Muslims just said more against groups like ISIS, you wouldn't have a problem. You know, if that was the answer, we would have solved this a really long time ago. It is about what happens to the mind of a young kid who is growing up with a crisis of identity, trying to figure out who they are and finding a sense of belonging in ideology of these extremist groups. And the fact is that everything is connected the way a young person grows up. Being Muslim in a community matters. And so we have got to make sure that there is nothing around the environment that promotes this idea that they will never belong, that promotes this idea that there is an us and them, that promotes this idea that the West is at war with Islam, because that's exactly what ISIS and groups like it want you to believe. Hey, Farah, you've told me before that you thought you were able to be effective in both Republican and Democratic administrations by being non-political. And I really wanted to ask you, can you still be non-political? Can any Muslim be non-political now? I've walked this line before. I know what it is like to try to build partnerships with, with civil society when civil society doesn't like the person in the White House, when civil society believes that there's a foreign policy that's doing something that they don't like. I, I've done it myself, but there is a way forward if and only if the commander in chief speaks on behalf of all Americans, respects the history of our country, respects all faiths, respects all religions and ethnicities and heritages and our history, and respects the Constitution. That is the only way we're going to be able to build those connectivities that we need. Farah, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure, Rupa. When I was a kid, I never would have expected the Indian-American, Hindu, and Muslim experiences to end up being so different. Our closest family friends were Muslim. I grew up going to parties at their motel by a highway. From Iowa, where I grew up, the historic tensions between Hindus and Muslims seemed quaint, almost old school. We were all American, and that was something that didn't happen here. But maybe we aren't so far from our past either here or in India. Both places experienced incredible trauma because of terrorist attacks. And in both places, a fear was reignited, sparking nationalist and isolationist feelings in diverse democracies that pride themselves on tolerance. India and the U.S. 
aren't really comparable, though, because Hindus are still the overwhelming majority in India. And the U.S. is on the brink of becoming the most diverse society ever. At least I think it is. That's something that's hard to fact check. I wonder if that diversity will make a difference in whatever happens next. Let me know what you think on Facebook or tweet me. Thanks for listening, especially in this time when the concept of otherhood has never been so important to understand. I'm Rupa Shanoi, and this has been Otherhood from PRI.